Addiction is a chronic disease. Millions of people worldwide suffer from substance and behavioral addictions. An addict's life is often unmanageable, leaving the addict and his or her family and friends feeling completely powerless over the disease. Without treatment, addiction can result in disability or premature death. You are listening to Making an Addict. My name is DJ Burr, and I'm an addict in long-term recovery. I'm a licensed psychotherapist, behavioral addiction specialist, and best-selling author of I Just Wanted Love, Recovery of a Codependent Sex and Love Addict, now available on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. I intend to bring you different perspectives about addiction from various sources, including other addicts in recovery, clinicians who treat recovering addicts, and families and friends of addicts to discover what makes an addict. Discretion is advised. To learn more about this podcast, check us out at makinganaddict.com or follow me on social media at djburr1022 on Facebook or the djburr on Instagram. Welcome to another episode of Making an Addict. I'm DJ Burr and today I am speaking with Troy Love. Troy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, you're so welcome. Can you tell our audience, you know, where you are and what you do? Yeah, so I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I live in Yuma, Arizona. And uh, last week it was 123 degrees down here. Oh, my word. (laughs) I've been here for 17 years. Um, I moved here from... Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, where I got my master's in social work and uh, started a private practice about nine, ten years ago. And I focus on helping people with sex addiction, building relationships, uh, repairing relationships that are broken, and helping people heal from trauma. Excellent. So it sounds like you and I are, are doing similar work. Um, yeah. Focus on sex addiction and you know, working through and healing trauma. So that's fantastic. I'm really glad um, to be able to talk with you today. Um, Do you have your own addiction background? Is that how you got into the field? Yeah. Um, So when I, when I first went to my bachelor's degree, um, my professor in my, my professor in social work said, if you want to be a good social worker, you're going to need to go to counseling yourself. And I was in so much denial at that time. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I don't need any counseling. <laughs> Whatever. I'm cool. Um, but then uh, uh, when I went to Pittsburgh and went to the University of Pittsburgh there, um, they put me in uh, my practicum, which was at Gateway, Gateway Rehabilitation Center, founded by Dr. Abraham Torsky. And um, that was the first time that I'd ever actually met somebody that had an addiction. I was working with these um, people in group, and it was in intensive outpatient. Um, and they were coming to group, and they were telling me their stories of addiction. And I started to realize that I also had an addiction. I had an addiction to porn um, that I had been battling, um, didn't really get exposed to porn until I was about 21 and had access to the internet, but I've been battling with compulsive sexual behaviors since a teenager. And so as they started to tell me their stories, 
um, I could resonate with that. And that was like the first time that I realized, oh my gosh, there's something going on with me. So I started to um, go to counseling at that time. Um, not a whole lot of people knew what to do with sex addiction at that time. Um, and then I graduated from from Pittsburgh and uh, moved to Yuma. Got uh, my first job here in Yuma at a mental health agency and was working with kids and families and did that for a little while and realized I I need to do some of my own work. I'm not really prepared to be able to deal with this. There's a lot of counter-transference going on. Like, I got to go. So I took a break um, from counseling, went to work at a hospital for about 10 years. During that time, I was doing therapy and, and working on my stuff and really got a hold on being able to be in recovery and then just felt like uh, really God was telling me, okay, now that you've learned some tools, you got to go share this with other people. And I kept like, I don't want to do that. I got to go. I'm for like two years just pounding on me. You got to go back to private practice. You have gifts to help people who are dealing with the same stuff. You got to go. And so finally one day I walked into my boss's office and said, I got to quit. And she's like, what? And I said, yeah, I don't know. This is crazy, but I got to quit. I'm giving you three months notice. I'm going to start my own private practice. And that was in 2009. And wow. so I opened my doors in 2010 and um, have been helping people with that ever since. Excellent. I, you know, I opened my doors in 2010 as well. And so that's pretty amazing. Yeah. That's uh, awesome. Yeah, thanks. It's interesting, you know, because a lot of us, you know, are as mental health counselors or addiction counselors. We can't help other people until we learn to help ourselves. But when we get into this field, we we typically find out like, yeah, we have some shit to work on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. You know, and some and people, I still do. <laughs> exactly. You know, we're perfectly imperfect, and we're always going to be doing this work. And some people uh, start doing it early in their education because some of the schooling requires that you get into therapy while you're doing the training. Right. And so not not everyone has that experience. I mean, when I was in school, they told us, go check out a couple groups and things like that. So I went into a 12-step meeting. But I didn't know mm-hmm. that I, at the time, I didn't know I needed to also be in the meeting, not just visiting. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so it wasn't until I got into, um, you know, private practice and working for an agency where I realized, like, yeah, I need to do my own work. So it's very yeah. similar. I hear this story over and over again. It's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I know nowadays they do make you go to, to therapy for some, but. I, even with the, the the therapist that I supervise, I'm like, you need to be doing your own stuff. You need to be doing your own work. That's what makes you the best therapist you can be. Right. So. Right. And so what do you think contributed to your own addiction? Oh, heavens. Well, <laughs> the, the more that I've, um, the more that I've kind of gone through this field, and 
explored what this addiction stuff is all about, the more I've, I think I've latched onto the attachment theory of addiction. Um, and I actually just wrote a book called Finding Peace, Healing from the Wounds of Loss, Rejection, Abandonment, Betrayal, Neglect, Abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, as I began my own work and then working with other people, I realized that addiction really has been driven by these wounds that we've experienced as we grew up and sometimes in teenagehood and adulthood that have caused us some deep pain. And um, usually as we're growing up, we don't really recognize that those wounds even were created because we didn't know any better. But underneath that, there's a lot of pain. And so then we are trying to find ways to numb that pain. And for me, um, I um, I was adopted when I was five days old and I'm, I'm grateful for the courage that my birth mother made to, uh, to, to make that choice. Um, but there was also, that, that was a wound of, uh, it felt like abandonment, even though cognitively I know that that's not what was going on. But throughout my whole life, I remember sitting in, in elementary school and wondering if there were other kids that maybe I was a sibling to. And just and always wondering uh, if there was somebody out there, and uh, wow. and then I grew up in a family where there was a lot of domestic violence. And um, your adopted family. Yeah, in my adopted family. Oh man. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of domestic violence going on, and um, and then as I entered into middle school, I was a scrawny little kid, um, didn't really connect well uh, with the boys. I played more with the girls. And so entering into junior high, I was bullied a lot, um, a lot of bullying. So, you know, put all of that together. And then I, I found uh, masturbation when I was about 14 years old. And, oh, that was amazing. That was like a numbing. My, a friend of mine told me about it and said, you shouldn't do it because you won't be able to stop. Well, I'd never heard of that before, so wow. I went I went and tried it, and he was right. I couldn't stop. And so every night, and then just the shame of, oh, I'm doing something wrong, and oh, God, please help me not do this again. I'm not going to do this again. And every, you know, and that living in that little secret world, nobody, nobody around me knew that that was going on. I, I didn't feel safe in that conversation in my own home. Um, so, um, so I didn't and, um, just kind of battled with that until I got, um, when I was 22, well, it was when I was, when I was 18, I finally shared, uh, that I was struggling with, with that, with an ecclesiastical leader. And that was the first time I'd ever told anybody. And I remember walking home from that meeting like the world had just been lifted off of my shoulders wow. and that's really um kind of the uh, that was the beginning of my journey even though i didn't know that i was an addict at that time or i was struggling with that stuff it's really the first time i shared that story and the love and support that i got was oh, it's incredible and 
Oh, that's great. So, a lot of us get shame yeah. and rejection. You got love and support. I did. I did. It was, uh, it was wonderful. So, um, they didn't know what else to do, you know. The, sure. the basic advice was, he will just, you know, just try to stop. <laughs> that was the message. Okay, I'll try that. But, you know, but <laughs> that was the first time that I had ever told anybody, and it was it was awesome. So as I as I look at that, what I what and every every person that I work with that's dealing with addiction, they've got those same wounds of loss rejection, abandonment, betrayal, neglect, abuse. They've got similar wounds that that are underneath all of that and they've just been using their addiction, whatever their drug of choice happens to be, as a as a way of numbing that pain. And so if we can help them resolve some of that pain underneath it, then there's not as much of a need to continue numbing the pain anymore. Right, and we can't resolve it overnight. That's the one thing I want people to know is that it takes time. Absolutely. Right? Addiction recovery takes time. Do not go into a therapist's office expecting that within a, a week or 30 days yeah. that things are going to exactly. be, you know, 100% better. That's just not going to happen. No, exactly. I mean, the neurology of it, the neuros the brain science of it is that, you know, your brain has been rewired over the years of this addiction. It's going to take at least two to three years to rewire your brain again to, to deal with this in a more healthy way. So don't, don't think it's going to just happen in six months or 90 days or whatever. Right. And you have to be consistent with it. You know, I, I always recommend that people engage themselves in weekly therapy you know, going to 12-step groups several times a week, working with a sponsor, all of those things right. to help rewire our brains from the addict, the addiction. Exactly. When did you decide to, to write a book? Well, I started writing that book about three years ago um, because I was teaching on the attachment theory and as it relates to addiction and numbing as it uh, relates to undermining of the relationships that we're trying to form with our loved ones. And I would do workshops and uh, retreats and introduce these concepts to some, you know, keynote speeches or here and there. And everybody's like, well, where can I learn more about this stuff? This is, this is fascinating stuff. Where can I go? Do you have a book? And I'm like, "Eh, no, I don't have a book. Well, you should write one. You should write one. That was never on my radar. Uh, But I thought, okay, well, fine. So I started writing it. I started working on it about three years ago. And then uh, a buddy of mine, I think you've interviewed him. His name's Forrest Benedict, um, just uh, published his book a couple of months ago. And I'm like, okay, if he can do this, then I can do this. So I ramped it up and uh, started... uh, Started, I finished it and got it ready to go, and, and actually it just uh, came out about two months ago, or about a month and a half ago. Oh, so fantastic. He was kind of the kick in the butt that made me say, okay, if he can do it, I can do it too. I'm glad to hear that. Forrest is great. He was on the show a few weeks ago, and I have been using his book in my practice with my clients, and I'm seeing phenomenal results. So I would love to introduce your book to my clients as well. 
Where can people find a copy? Awesome. Yeah, so if you go to Amazon.com, and you can just try type in Troy L. Love in the search bar, and my book will be the first book that comes up. And it's uh, called Finding Peace. There's an E version, and then there's an actual hard copy version you can get. That's wonderful. All right, folks, go to Amazon and get Troy's book. Now, Troy, um, when you're working with folks who are, you know, coming in to address sexual addiction, where do you start with them? I start with really, well, first thing we do is just try to get an understanding of their history and, and uh, how sex addiction shows up for them. Because, as you know, everybody's uh, behavior patterns are quite different. True. Um, some are some are only looking at porn and masturbating. Some are hiring hookers or uh, using Craigslist. You know the, the gamut. And so we're really trying to get a, an idea of okay where you're at, and then immediately I try to get them hooked up with uh, a group as well as individuals so that they can start to shatter that cloud of shame that makes them think I'm the only one. I, I'm the only person that's dealing with this. So they meet other other men who are also struggling in similar ways and find out, man, I look across the room and I see that guy and he looks pretty awesome. He looks he looks good and um I don't think badly about him and he's looking at me and he's like telling me he really appreciates that I'm here and that I encourage that really? I'm not bad. I'm not hmm. horrible. This is a, you know, I love that part. I love when they first come in. So c connecting them to a community of support and then really starting to have them start doing the work, go into the 12 step meetings, filling out, doing their workbooks, um, completing the assignments that they need so that they can start to get some recovery under their belt, start to get some tools to be able to stay sober. That's you know, we work on that for a while. And when they start to get a, a pattern of sobriety under their belt, then we start to look at the trauma underneath that. I try not to stir up the trauma right at the beginning because that just leads them to go act out again. What I, I want them to get some tools first to be able to manage and stay sober for a little while first. Yeah, I, I typically follow the same path. I don't currently lead any yeah. groups, but I can refer them to folks in my community who are leading groups. So um, I think that's a, a valuable tool to have. We have to to know um, that we're not alone. We're not alone in this, this process. Yeah. Huh. I, think that's, I think that's key. Right. It is key. And so typically, how long do you um, work with an individual? couple of years yeah about two years or so mm-hmm okay yeah that's pretty much I, I think you know for me too and for folks who, who I know who work with uh, individuals in addiction recovery you know the people are in our in our space for two maybe three years consistently um, yeah. doing this work and it's important work and we have to touch all like aspects of their lives like what's going on at work what's going on at home what's going on in your family and we have to exactly. target you know those those areas and see you know yeah. what else that what else does the person need 
All right. And so for you in your own personal recovery, um, where are you at in your process? Uh, so I am 10 years sober. Fantastic. And I, thank you. Um, I uh, continue to attend. Uh, I, most of my work is I do individual counseling um, just for maintenance purposes, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then, then I have a pretty solid uh, group of support where I'm able to check in with different um, buddies. And uh, when I'm triggered or reaching out or, or struggling, I know I can reach out to them and, and get support and vice versa. I'm working on uh, continuing to deepen the relationship I have with my wife and my kids and uh, trying to be the best husband and father I can be. That's, that's right now. I think that that's the, the biggest journey that I'm, I, I'm working on now is how do I stand in my um, power as a man um, and connect with the gifts that I have so I can use them to bless my, my wife and my, my kids. Cause I think that sense of inadequacy that I've carried throughout my whole life still, still plays a role. That self doubt and shame still plays a role and makes me believe that maybe I'm not a good enough father and maybe I'm not, and it takes me right into shame again. And right. man, that sabotages everything. It does. And it does, you know, I don't know if it ever goes away uh, completely. I think we might always hold yeah. on to a piece of that um, because it is such a deep wound. You know? Um, well, yeah. Well, and that's, that's really, I think I, the, if you ask why did I write the book and the book, I wrote the book really for me, I think, in the end, right. mm -hmm. was, was how do I find my own peace? Uh, how do I find the joy, the love um, within me? Um, so in the end, that's really why I wrote that book, was for me. Right. And I imagine that you've had some experience of even more healing as a result of knowing that it's out there and that... Um, you were able to put, you know, what you were experiencing or what you thought would be helpful to put out for other people. I'm sure you've gotten some healing from that. I have. I mean, it's scary. I, I, you're an author, you know. You put you I put know. your stuff out there. And you're My like, stuff's oh! all out there, right? You know, it's like I have no secrets, none at all. So it's like, but that's that's a relief <laughs> to have no secrets. I don't need any. You Absolutely. Know? I had enough yep. in my uh, active addiction, so putting it out there is a relief. And I know that people are being helped because they let us know, right? I imagine that you get feedback about your I book. have, yeah. Yeah. What was something yeah, that absolutely. you heard that was really touching for you? Uh, so just yesterday I was um, talking to a friend, and he's like, my wife is reading your book to me out loud. It's really good. Uh, she's like taking notes. She's like writing all kinds of stuff. She's like, this is stuff that I, um, I never thought of. I never, I never considered these wounds and how they've impacted my life and, and how they've played, how they've written negative tattoos on my heart and given me neg these negative messages I've been carrying around my whole life. I never even knew. Oh. I was like, wow, 
So that was, it made me happy. That's fantastic. Wow. Uh, you know, I, I love hearing those messages. And you know, what that tells me is that people are willing to be informed because we don't yeah. know everything. Right. And so we have to sometimes go out there and seek the information and be willing to, to, to take it in and process it and make our own conclusions. And exactly. It changes the landscape. You know, it, truly changes our lives when we have new information so i i applaud you for putting it out there and and, and helping other people now is it would you say there's like some autobiographical stuff in there for you uh it there is but you wouldn't necessarily know it um the way when i started to write the book um at first i was writing it like typical self-help um book you know here's some information ponder upon that blah 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 and then uh halfway during the process i was like this this is tedious this is boring i don't (laughs) i don't like this so i ended up creating a fictional group and so the, the it's it's like this fusion of a fictional story and then there's a workbook so Uh, it starts out on the first night of group and you have these eight people that have never met each other before and they show up to group and then, and then um, the the group facilitator does some psycho educational pieces about the concepts that I've used. Um, And then the group members are given an assignment and then the reader is given the same assignment. Um, Mm. And then, they come back the next week and then the group processes what they just, the assignment they did and it gives the reader an opportunity to to kind of process what they did and then more information is given and and then another assignment is given. So it's like uh, the feedback that I've gotten from people, it's like, I feel like I'm part of the group. I feel like I uh, can connect with these characters and I I feel like I can... uh, be there with them like and I feel like I'm there and that 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 was that's really the intent that I was giving so um it it it's a story it tells a story and then the readers are able to to do the work along with these group members so yes if there's some autobiographical parts and yes some of the characters stories are my story mm. so I kind of weaved it in there that is bit. so creative. I I really like that. Are you using yeah. your book in any groups that you're running? Yeah. So so the the um, I run a, a program called Lifestar, which is a sex addiction treatment program, and it runs in a couple of phases. And the first two phases are really helping them, um, like I said before, get the grounding they need so that they can live a sober life. And then the third phase. It's all about trauma, and so uh, I used the that workbook at that time um, to help them really get a good understanding of what their trauma is, um, putting some words to it, and then giving them the tools to be able to resolve that trauma. And interestingly enough, Forrest is doing the same thing, um, using the book in his trauma group as well, and. The nice thing about the book is that even if you don't have an addiction, it could be used for a group of people because everybody has trauma. Right, we do. (laughs) 
<laughs> we can't escape it in one form yeah. or another we all will experience some will experience trauma yeah right it's just whether or not we have the tools that we need to to work through the traumas whether we end up you exactly. know uh going down the path of addiction so that's great yeah. i'm glad to hear that you know um i think all of our work you know my work, your work, Forrest's work, and all the other folks, you know, it's just so amazing that we were able to, you know, put put our words down on paper and put mm-hmm. it out there into the world where it will forever be and we'll be yep. helping people. <laughs> can't take it back. <laughs> you, we can't take it back. <laughs> we can't take it back, right? Once I put these right. podcast episodes out there, they're out there you know exactly and they're helping people and and people are growing and learning and 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 beginning to take care of themselves maybe in new ways that will be healing of that trauma and that's why exactly. i continue to get up every day and do this work and i imagine that that might be similar for you as well it is um when i um right before about three weeks before my wife and i moved out of Pittsburgh. Um, it was around Christmas time. And a friend of ours, uh, he was one of the professors of music in one of the, at Duquesne University, and his choir was giving a concert. And his wife, who has a beautiful voice, um, was um, featured in the, in the concert. She was singing a solo. And um, so we went. We went to this old uh they have amazing churches out there and we went to this old church and i was just looking around at all the architecture i look behind me and there's mr rogers from the television show really and he lived yeah and i'm like my wife lisa my wife's name's lisa at least there's mr rogers over there there's mr rogers and I'm like oh my gosh that's good and so during the intermission, I was like, should we go up to him? You know, he came here. He, you don't want to bother him, blah, blah. And the guy, the guy who was sitting next to us said, this is a, you, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity, guys. Uh, when are you ever going to have the opportunity to meet him again? Wow. So I said, okay. So uh, we went up to meet him. Uh, come to find out he loved hearing uh, my um, friend's wife sing. Her name's Carol Ann Allred, and she's a beautiful soprano. And so whenever she would sing in uh, the Pittsburgh area, he would go because he loved to hear her sing. Wow. And so that's, so that's why he was there. He was there with his wife. And so we went up to meet him. I said, hey, um, Mr. Rogers, I just want you to know how much you blessed my life and my, and my wife's um, life. And as we were growing up, I always watched your show. And he stood up. And he was probably about five foot six, five foot seven. He was a little shorter than I really? expected. Yeah. Um, and he introduced him, his wife to us, but he was so kind. And he, he just started talking. He's like, well, what are you guys doing here? And, you know, what's happening? And I told him, I just, I just finished my master's degree in social work and that I'm, I'm moving to Yuma, Arizona, um, to work with kids and families. And he, he, blessed me at uh, that moment he he said i i bless you in your journey um the the work that you're going to do for the world is amazing and i bless you that you will find success and happiness and uh 
that was just really amazing to have that from Mr. Rogers of all people. Right. And, and then we kept talking. The world makes us feel shallow and complicated. But really, as human beings, we are simple and deep. Mm. And if we can just connect with the simplicity of life and connect with the deepness that we have, we'll find joy. And so I reflect back on those days when I'm like, oh, should I be doing this? What what am I doing? This is hard stuff. Why, why am I working so hard? I, I think of those moments and looking Mr. Rogers in the eye and having him put his hand on my chest and just bless me to do this work. So it's a, I'm grateful for that opportunity. Troy, well, I am so grateful that you shared that story. That is a beautiful story, and I'm glad that you had that opportunity. And thank you for taking the opportunity to come on Making an Addict and talk to us about your experience, strength, and hope, and how you're giving back to the community. It sounds like you're doing some amazing work. And I want folks to to definitely go out there and get your book and, and, and... and let you know, like give you feedback, you know, write reviews on Amazon. We appreciate those reviews because it lets us know that you got something out of it and that you were applying it to your life. So definitely give Troy some love there. No pun intended. (laughs) 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 And Troy love, thank you for, for being on making an addict today. Uh, thank you so much, DJ. Really, it's an honor. All right. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you for joining the discussion today on Making an Addict. In closing, I want you to understand that there are various opinions about addiction and what makes someone an addict. The opinions expressed here on today's show are those of the person who made them. I suggest you take what you heard, process it, and decide for yourselves what you believe in. If you have feedback or want to tell your story on the show, let me know by emailing makinganaddict at gmail.com or you can reach me on social media. Again, I'm on Facebook and Twitter at djburr1022 and thedjburr on Instagram. Lastly, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be of service. Recovery saved my life and I will be forever grateful. I will keep giving back every opportunity I am given. Tune in next time to witness our ongoing discussion on Making an Addict. Today's music features tracks by CDK. Find out more at makingandaddict.com.